Hello, and welcome again to the Radio Gaga podcast. I'm your host, Justine Pajowski, and today is the second and final installment of our Pet Sounds episode series. In episode one, we cover the beginnings of the Beach Boys all the way up through side one of Pet Sounds, and in this episode, we'll go through side two of Pet Sounds and everything that comes after for Brian Wilson and the Beach Boys. Real quick, just want to mention my main sources again, the 33 and a third on Pet Sounds written by Jim Fusilli, Wouldn't It Be Nice, Brian Wilson and the Making of the Beach Boys Pet Sounds by Charles Granada, and Brian Wilson's memoir, I Am Brian Wilson from 2016. All of these books were incredibly helpful in my research and are all interesting reads if you're a fan of Pet Sounds. Just a quick heads up, you can always go to RadioGagaPodcast.com and click on book list to see the music books I recommend. I read quite a bit for this podcast, so I update that page all the time. With that, let's get right into side two of Pet Sounds, starting with God Only Knows. Brian had originally planned to sing lead on this song, but instead he assigned it to his youngest brother, Carl, feeling like he'd be a better fit. Brian tells Carl to just sing it straight with no effort, and he nails it. But long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it. I'll make you so sure about it. God only knows what I'd be without you. God only knows turns the traditional love song on its head. First of all, no pop writer in that time dared to include God in a song, let alone in the title. Brian and his songwriting partner, Tony Asher, both had reservations about including it, mainly for fear of seeming blasphemous, but they went for it. They also started a love song with the line, I may not always love you, a decidedly new twist. But in the end, the lyrics reveal that the narrator is basically saying, I'll love you until the world doesn't exist anymore. I'll love you a lifetime. They finished all the lyrics to this song in just 45 minutes. God Only Knows has always been up for lyrical interpretation in a lot of ways. I like to think of it as a positive, albeit desperate, love song, though it could be seen negatively. I think the fact that the lyrics are a little confusing and left open for interpretation mirrors Brian's feelings about his wife Marilyn at the time he wrote it. As we know, they had just gotten married and he was starting to feel unsure about their relationship. He had a crush on her sister and was touring so often that they barely even saw each other anyway. As Charles Granada posits in his book, it could be argued that lines like, I may not always love you, and if you should ever leave me, are Brian anticipating the inevitability of a time when they'll no longer be together. And when he says, life would still go on, believe me, that sounds almost defensive, like, well, I didn't need you anyway, life goes on without you. But then he turns a desperate 180, saying, well, if that happens, then what good would living do me? Implying the possibility that he might kill himself if she leaves him. Major ups and downs all throughout this song, but that's just the kind of anguish Brian had going on in his mind. However you look at the song, there's one point in Brian and Marilyn's marriage that I know had to inspire it. In 1964, while the Beach Boys were on tour, Brian wrote home to Marilyn every day. 
he ended one of his love letters with the phrase, yours till God wants us apart. God Only Knows is also a masterclass in harmonies. And this isn't just the oohs and ahs the Beach Boys were known for. Those were easy. Let's isolate the vocal part of God Only Knows starting toward the middle of the song. When Carl sings alone, his voice is doubled up, a technique that Brian loved and that the Beatles were utilizing a lot. But at all other times, the rest of the band's vocals intertwine. The harmonies on this song are far more complicated than any of the Beach Boys had ever done before. Yet, it should be noted that Mike Love, Al Jardine, and Dennis Wilson don't sing on this song at all. God only knows what I'd be without you. There was a point at which everyone in the band, and more, were supposed to sing on this song. At one point, Brian had his wife Marilyn and even her sister Diane helping out with the harmonies. But eventually, he self-edited and decided to only track three voices for the end round, two of his own on the high and low tracks, and Bruce Johnston's voice in the middle. It creates this super precise, intricate point and counterpoint that still sounds like the entire band is involved. Looking at God Only Knows from an instrumental standpoint, there is a lot involved. Original Sessions sat 23 different musicians just on this song, but the final cut contains 16. It starts out with a powerful, beautiful theme featuring French horns, and what I think is a combination of piano, harpsichord, and I think I also hear accordion. Then Brian pulls in the famous sleigh bells played by drummer Hal Blaine. The clip-clop sound you hear was achieved by Hal Blaine and Jim Gordon of The Wrecking Crew. They would always be drinking orange juice out of the vending machines at the recording studio, so Hal saved some of the containers, cleaned them out, and cut them into three different sizes. He then taped them together, and Gordon would hit them with a vibraphone mallet to create the clip-clop sound that I always thought was a woodblock. More layers are added on for the second verse, including Carol Kay on 12-string electric guitar, Lyle Ritz on upright string bass, and Ray Pullman on electric bass. start to hear the violins and other strings more clearly in the final verse, as well as the woodwind section and that beautiful French horn. 
They start to foreshadow the vocal patterns that will be sung by Brian and Bruce Johnston in the fade out. I think that's why their three vocal tracks sound more like six or eight vocal tracks and why it feels so full. The instruments almost sound like voices of their own. Let's go to the second track on side two, I Know There's an Answer. I know so many people who think they can do it alone. song was called I Know There's an Answer, its working title was Hang On to Your Ego. One of the things Brian Wilson described in detail when he talked about his first LSD trip was what's called an ego death. In addition to its place in mythology, the ego death is also a common term in psychedelic experiences, outlined by Timothy Leary in his book The Psychedelic Experience. It's considered a complete transcendence of the self a loss of subjectivity as it relates to your identity, and a fundamental transformation of the psyche. This is when it's not just recreational drug use, this is some deep shit. Brian was understandably inspired by this experience he had the year prior, but also felt like he needed to educate people about its effects. So in addition to calling this song Hang On To Your Ego, he wrote the whole thing about that, about LSD and how he honestly felt. Mike Love was having none of that. He didn't want the Beach Boys associated with the drug subculture of the time. At his insistence, Brian agreed to change some of the lyrics to be more about finding yourself rather than a massive acid trip. I should note, if you listen to my parental advisory episode, Mike Love the Square was also very much on the side of censorship, donating $5,000 in seed money to Tipper Gore's organization. In the end, though, the small lyrical changes that were made were pretty negligible. The song is still very clearly about Brian's experience with psychedelics. Two of the instruments I find most interesting on I Know There's an Answer are the tack piano and the bass harmonica. The bass harmonica is a harmonica built in such a low register that it almost mimics a saxophone. There are saxophones on this song, but they're usually playing the same line that the bass harmonica is playing.
The tack piano, also known as a junk piano, is an ordinary piano but altered so that there are tacks, nails, or some other sharp metallic objects placed on the hammers inside the piano. So when you press a key down on a tack piano, all the same functions happen as a regular piano, but instead of the reverberation of a soft felt hammer hitting metal strings, it's a sharp metal tack hitting metal strings, which creates a more percussive sound. The result sounds kind of like a piano you'd find in an old saloon. Let's move on to the third song on side two, Here Today. It starts with just a little glance now. Right away you're thinking about romance now. You know you ought to take it slower. But you just can't wait to get to know her. A brand new love affair is such a beautiful thing. But if you're Today was one song Brian Wilson says he didn't really identify as much with as he did with some of the others on Pet Sounds. It's a song about how fleeting love can be. One day it's here and tomorrow it's gone. So why even try to get into a relationship in the first place? It's a pretty pessimistic outlook on things, but certainly we've all felt this in some way at one time or another in our lives. Tired of getting dumped, getting our heart broken, being rejected. The orchestral break in the middle is beautiful and one of Brian's most ambitious moments on Pet Sounds. It was inspired by the Baroque era composer Johann Sebastian Bach. Much as Brian Wilson put into Pet Sounds and perfected it, there were some small mixing mistakes that ended up on the finished record. 
There's a rumor Capitol Records rushed Brian Wilson into completing the album, so he only gave himself basically a day to mix everything together. And for that reason, before the tracks were tweaked and edited, there was a lot of extra noise in the background of many of them. Most of that got edited out, but some of it was just quiet enough to get missed. And here today, you can very faintly hear Bruce Johnston talking in the background beginning around a minute and 55 seconds. He's apparently talking to someone about a camera he bought in Japan. Then a few seconds go by and you can hear Brian yell out, top please, indicating to the group that he wants another take. Brian had these mistakes edited out in the stereo remaster, but you can still hear them in original recordings. Let's talk about the next track, I Just Wasn't Made For These Times. And I've been trying hard to find the people that I won't leave behind. They say I got I Just Wasn't Made For These Times is Brian Wilson recognizing that he's different. When he and Tony Asher wrote this song, Asher says they didn't discuss any literal things that happened to Brian to make him feel left out. Nothing specific, like, I don't feel comfortable in a crowd, or I remember feeling left out as a kid, nothing like that. Instead, the way Brian wanted to talk was of a theoretical nature, more like, what if we wrote about a kid somewhere who feels like he doesn't fit in? Clearly the song is from Brian's perspective, but he knew he wasn't the first to feel this way. He wanted his music to speak to many, many people, and it does. It's relatable. Every time I hear this song, I think about the kids in the world who are being bullied right now, in school, online, or otherwise. A lot of us were bullied as kids, and maybe still bullied as adults, for things that we know are actually unique and beautiful things about us as individuals. You're thinking you've got something good going for yourself, then someone tells you you're wrong. What are you supposed to do with that information? It's really confusing having the world tell you your heart is wrong. And this song is just documenting that feeling. He isn't trying to resolve it, he's just putting it out there so you know you're not alone. Jim Fusilli writes about a quote Brian Wilson gave in 1996 about going back and listening to this song. Brian says, quote, When I listen to it today, I feel like somebody really took the time to create some honest music, somebody like me, end quote. Fusilli notes that this is an important distinction Wilson makes. He's almost separating Brian the man from Brian the musician and songwriter. Wilson goes on to say, quote, be aware of the love in those songs that is able to give the listener the feeling of being loved, end quote. He wrote this entire album about himself, but for us.
The song also describes pretty specifically how Brian was feeling as he made pet sounds. All of his friends told him he was crazy for taking the Beach Boys in this direction, and the narrator talks about getting inspiration to turn things around, but says, no one wants to help me look for places where new things might be found. The Beach Boys felt like they had a really good thing going until Brian decided to stop touring with them. I mean, you know what they did. They just got a new singer and kept touring. They didn't want pet sounds. They wanted to keep surfing. And the title itself, I Just Wasn't Made For These Times, should have been Brian Wilson's personal mantra in 1966. Pet Sounds was so massively ahead of its time, and he knew that. He knew before all of us that he had created an album that would speak to generations. His masterwork. And then the world told him he was wrong. At least at first they did, but we'll get to that. I Just Wasn't Made For These Times is another great wall of sound moment, dynamic and full. It also contains the first documented use of electrotheremin sounds on a rock record. The electrotheremin is a sound-alike instrument to the theremin, the only instrument that is played without actually touching it. I'm doing a whole episode about the theremin on the podcast next week. It's one of my favorite instruments, and that unique sound is one of the reasons I love this song so much. Let's go to the title track, Pet Sounds. Sounds is the only other track on the album besides Let's Go Away For A While that is all instrumental. This is one of the coolest wall of sound moments on Pet Sounds, and even though it seems a little out of place, I think it's kind of a neat palate cleanser. It's loud, clanky, and has this kind of Latin bossa nova feeling to it. The song's original title was Run James Run, as Brian Wilson was sure it would make for a perfect addition to the soundtrack of a James Bond film. He wanted to send it to them, but ended up just putting it on Pet Sounds instead. When Brian Wilson writes and listens to music, he doesn't just hear it with his one working ear. He hears music through his entire body. According to a 2014 scientific paper on the effects of music perception as it relates to deafness, when one sense is unavailable, responsibilities throughout the sensorium shift and other senses are heightened as a result. And this is what's happening here for Brian Wilson. When you listen to pet sounds, you can practically hear him hearing and creating the music this way, not just in and out of his ears, but through his feet and up into his head. It's really cool.
let's move on to the last song on Pet Sounds, Caroline No. Pet Sounds closing song, Brian talked to Tony Asher about a girl he used to have a crush on in high school. She was a cheerleader named Carol Mountain and had long brunette hair and glowing skin. Tony, who serendipitously also had an ex-girlfriend of his own in mind named Carol, suggested calling the song Oh Carol, I Know. But Brian misheard it as Caroline No and actually liked that better. Brian called up his old crush Carol Mountain as he was writing Pet Sounds. He learned that she had gotten married and was still living in their old hometown of Hawthorne, California. Mountain herself tells author Peter Carlin of that moment, remembering, quote, He didn't sound drugged or anything, but it was very strange. He'd call at 3 a.m. and want to talk about music, but it was nothing inappropriate. It was just a strange thing he was going through, calling and connecting, end quote. I think in Brian's mind, Carol is more than just a girl he used to have a crush on. She's a symbol of all the good things about his teenage years and his last remaining connection to his childhood. And now she's growing up and becoming an adult. Carol has a job and a family now and doesn't let her hair down as often in a metaphorical sense. She's moved on, but Brian in his own mind is still a child. He worries for Carol's well-being as a grown-up because he sees youth as the gold standard. I like that the title was changed to Caroline No, because Oh Carol, I Know implies he can relate to the natural arc of her life. But instead, the answer to every question posed in this song is just no. Brian longs for adolescence again, that happy glow he used to see in Carol reflected back in him. But it can't come back. It's so sad to watch a sweet thing die. Caroline No was sung by Brian and was originally recorded in a lower key. But the song was sped up in post-production so that Brian's voice would sound higher and a little more boyish, one of Murray's ideas. Here's the song in the original key it was recorded in, and then compared to the final key it's in on Pet Sounds. also some cool percussion that goes on in this song, courtesy of the late drummer Hal Blaine. Quick side note, Hal Blaine just passed away last month at the age of 90. He was an absolute legend, playing drums on Pet Sounds, but also multiple number one hits, including The Birds' Mr. Tambourine Man, Simon and Garfunkel's Mrs. Robinson and Bridge Over Troubled Water, 
and Frank Sinatra's Strangers in the Night. His family made a really sweet statement in his memory, quote, may he rest forever on two and four. On Caroline No, Blaine achieves that big echoey tom sound by hitting the bottom of an empty water cooler jug they found in the studio. Let's listen to just instrumentals for a moment. The harpsichord comes in at the same time as Brian does on vocals, as does the ukulele. You can also hear the bass and some shimmery guitars. Then the woodwinds come in, flutes and saxophones. Then a bass flute solo phases out to the end. Well, almost to the end. The train and dog barking comes in at the very end of Caroline No, which I'll explain when we talk about the album's title in just a moment. For having 13 tracks, Pet Sounds is fairly short, clocking in at just 36 minutes. Almost every song is under three minutes. I always forget how short the album is. It sort of all blends together and feels so much longer in a good way. Pet Sounds was also originally recorded in mono, meaning the sound was recorded using only one channel. Even though the mass production of stereo LPs began in 1958, some purists, including Brian Wilson, still chose to record their records in mono. Perhaps one reason was the fact that Brian Wilson could only hear in mono, as he was deaf in his one ear. Wilson was also obsessed with Phil Spector, as we know, who recorded his music only in mono to preserve the balance of sonic texture as he believed it was meant to be heard. 
The first stereo mix of Pet Sounds wasn't released until 1997, and even then, Monopurist believed it was blasphemous, essentially comparing the stereo mix of Pet Sounds to the application of color to a black and white film. I'm the wrong person to analyze this too much, as I don't have a great ear for sound design or production, but there are certainly diehards out there who could tell you specific differences between the two. The cover art of Pet Sounds shows the famous Cooper Black font that is now synonymous with Pet Sounds, as well as a photo of the five members of the Beach Boys feeding little pieces of apples to goats. The snapshot was taken by photographer George German at the San Diego Zoo in February 1966. Capital's working title for Pet Sounds was originally Our Freaky Friends, which is why they did the shoot with the goats at the zoo. But the band members were at odds about the photo. Al Jardine hated the idea, arguing that other bands like the Beatles, Bob Dylan, and the Rolling Stones were using more sophisticated portraits on their covers around that time. Personally, I've always loved this cover. I never knew the story behind it until now, but I always loved how unbelievably sophisticated the music is on the inside, with a cover of the boys just basically being kids on the outside. It's Brian Wilson personified in packaging. The name Pet Sounds was actually an idea that stemmed from the very last song on the album, Caroline No, where you hear dogs barking at the end against the sound of a passing train. Those are actually Brian Wilson's two dogs, his beagle Banana and his Weimaraner, Louie. He had brought them into the studio and engineer Chuck Britt says it was the most bizarre session he's ever been a part of. Apparently, the dogs just sat there and howled in the booth for a while. Brits told everyone not to let the dogs outside of the room, but someone accidentally opened the door and one of the dogs went upstairs and peed on a couple people's legs. In the same breath, Brian would ask Chuck if he could bring a horse into the studio to pose behind a microphone for the cover photo. To Brits' relief, they just went to the zoo instead. Here's an actual clip from inside the studio at that moment. Total chaos. Hey, Chuck, is it possible we can bring a horse in here without, if we don't screw anything up? I beg your pardon? Oh, honest to God, the horse is staying there. We bring it in, would you all right? Just bring his trainer along behind him. I need a trainer. I got my, bring my horse. Can you get it today? Get it down here. We'll stay here. I need a, I got to run a trainer. I'll be here, here till three. You can do it. No way. Brian, my horse would be so bitching in here. Why not? You know, you know, you know what you do? Pictures of a horse in the studio. Oh, just the pictures. Come on, Louis. It was Mike Love's idea to call the album Pet Sounds, joking that Brian was making music only dogs could hear. Al Jardine later said, quote, That was Mike's way of saying, I don't understand it, but the dogs do. Brian was all for the new title, especially since Pet Sounds also had the same initials as his idol, Phil Spector. Upon its release in 1966, Pet Sounds saw a great reaction from British audiences, but received a generally unenthusiastic response in the US. It was passed over by the Grammys, which in 1966 were swept by Frank Sinatra, and Pet Sounds eventually peaked at number 10 a few months after its release. Brian was hurt by America's lukewarm reception to an album he had put so much of his heart and soul into, although a part of him wasn't surprised. 
He was a little concerned as they were cutting the record that it would be too serious, too intricate for the public to even take notice. Plus, executives at Capitol Records were really confused by the album. Both the record company and Beach Boys fans had come to rely on the band for surfing, sun, girls, and cars, not this new avant-garde art project. Capitol executives were convinced that Wilson was no longer out to make records. He was out to just get attention and try to create confusing music that someone like his dad couldn't relate to. So Capitol didn't try that hard to promote it, and it hurt Pet Sounds immensely. Plus, to try and combat the initial failure of Pet Sounds in the US, Capitol released Best of the Beach Boys shortly after. Unlike Pet Sounds, the Beach Boys Best of immediately went gold and stayed on the charts over a year. An interesting question I saw during my research was whether Pet Sounds would have fared better if it were marketed as an actual Brian Wilson solo album instead of an album by the Beach Boys. In theory, it basically is a solo album. Brian conceived, arranged, and produced the record, and the Beach Boys were for the most part only involved in a vocal capacity. Brian also sings lead on a majority of the record. But in reality, while Brian Wilson is considered a virtuoso these days, Back then, he was just getting started, and people didn't know that about him yet. Plus, the Beach Boys didn't just have the talent, but they also had name recognition. Pet Sounds fared better as a Beach Boys album than a Brian Wilson solo album because the name The Beach Boys gave the record credibility. But overall, the public just wasn't willing to put the time and effort into Pet Sounds that it needed in order to be appreciated. Teenagers in 1966, music's main customer, we're still buying 7-inch singles for under a dollar, not entire LPs. And Pet Sounds arrived right at a revolutionary time for pop music. Vietnam protest songs and folk music were forming a strong foundation, and we were still a year away from the summer of love. There was still this sense of innocence amongst youth, and they wanted easy, three-minute singles about surfing in cars, not music where they had to actively listen and understand things on a deeper level. It was just so baffling to people when it first came out that it was hard for everyone to turn on the same dime that Brian Wilson had. In 1967, Wilson made a statement about the commercial failure of Pet Sounds, in which he sounds both accepting and disappointed in the reception of what he considered to be a masterwork. He said, quote, I know that in some circles we're not regarded as hip or in, but I don't care too much what anyone says, so long as I'm staying ahead, right up to the limit of my present capabilities. And I know for sure that the Beach Boys brought something new to rock and roll, end quote. Retrospectively, there was a lot of reevaluation amongst music critics and fans starting a few years after the initial shock of Pet Sounds. But it would be nearly 30 years before the album would officially be affirmed as the standard of music production. But eventually, Wilson was right. The Beach Boys had brought so many new ideas to rock and roll. I could go on and on about the different ways this album has impacted the music industry. But in my eyes, what it boils down to is two major turning points. Pet Sounds emboldened musicians to take more control over the production of their own music and encouraged them to be experimental in the recording studio. And that changed everything. Pet Sounds advanced music production in so many ways and influenced both specific musicians and entire genres. It was so far removed from anything else going on in pop in 1966 that it became this open door, this huge stepping stone for music that would follow. For instance, the psychedelic rock genre is not normally associated with the Beach Boys, 
But the themes and sounds and experiments in Pet Sounds open the door for psychedelic pop artists to become more visible. Pet Sounds also helped usher progressive and art rock to the forefront. And along with the Beatles' Rubber Soul and Revolver, the Beach Boys transformed rock at the time from dance music into music that was made for listening to. You can hear on the Beatles' Revolver that they were massively influenced by the ethos of Pet Sounds, as they had first heard it while they were recording that album. And according to Beatles producer George Martin, 1967's Sgt. Pepper was a direct attempt to equal Pet Sounds. Before finishing Pet Sounds, Brian began work on the follow-up to his masterpiece, calling it a, quote, teenage symphony to God. This album would be called Smile, and Brian insisted it would be even better than Pet Sounds. One song on Smile was almost on Pet Sounds, but was left off. And that was the smash hit, Good Vibrations. On the wind that lifts her perfume through the air I'm picking up good vibrations She's giving me the excitations I'm picking up good vibrations She's giving me the excitations From here, things start to get complicated. Brian ran himself into the ground during the Smile sessions, trying to create an even better follow-up to Pet Sounds. Smile very possibly could have been better than Pet Sounds, but his mental state would become more and more diminished as his ideal of perfection strayed further out of his reach. In 1967, Brian abandoned the project, disheartened at his failure to one-up himself. The record company needed something, so the Beach Boys scrambled to release a simplified version of the album, Smiley Smile to poor record sales. Of Brian's 12 original tracks, Smiley Smile contained only five. Carl Wilson later compared the end result to a bunt instead of a grand slam. Meanwhile, Brian's drug use escalated to not just LSD and pot, but amphetamines, cocaine, and alcohol abuse. Between 1967 and 72, Brian was still involved in the creation of Beach Boys albums, including Wild Honey, Friends, and 2020. But his appearances in the studio were uninspired, and he usually showed up high or hungover and still in his pajamas. He also learned that his dad Murray had sold the Beach Boys' entire catalog in 1969 to the publishing arm of A&M Records for only $700,000. And as head of the Beach Boys publishing company, Murray Wilson received 100% of the proceeds. These songs were worth millions, and it was Brian's life's work. This deal has been the focus of numerous lawsuits even decades later, including in 1989 when Wilson sued to reclaim the copyrights to his songs, asking for $100 million in back royalties. He got $10 million. But two years later, lost five of that to Mike Love, who sued him for back royalties. It was a mess. When Murray died in 1973, 
Brian really spiraled. He attributes that now as the major downward turning point of his mental state in the early 70s. By 1974, Brian was basically a bum. His family, worried Brian would squander his money on drugs and alcohol, restricted his bank access. So Brian went to the streets of L.A. to beg for rides, booze, and drugs. His wife Marilyn had tried and tried to get through to Brian to no avail, so she called in a psychologist, Dr. Eugene Landy, to help get Brian's life back on track. Landy had worked with celebrities in the past and was well known for his unorthodox techniques in getting self-destructive people back on their feet. The first few years working with Dr. Landy helped Brian a little. He participated on the Beach Boys' comeback album, 15 Big Ones, in 1976, and re-emerged in 1977 to write, play, and sing on the Beach Boys' album, Love You. Dr. Landy parted ways at that point, but even though Brian felt comfortable in the studio again, he wasn't really better. He would fight constantly with his bandmates, and his behavior both in the studio and at home was still completely dysfunctional and erratic. His drug use also continued. Brian and Marilyn divorced in 1979, and she took their children to stay with her. The Beach Boys released Keeping the Summer Alive in 1980, but Brian had descended so deeply back into depression by this point that his presence in the studio felt like more of an obligation than something that was actually helping him. At one point, Wilson was deeply in debt, unhealthy, living in the park as a vagrant and wandering off for days at a time, leaving his bandmates wondering if he would show up to record. Finally, after an accidental overdose involving alcohol, cocaine, and other psychoactives in 1982, the rest of the Beach Boys were so concerned with Brian's well-being that they fired him from the band and insisted that he rehire Dr. Landy, hoping the move would save his life. was 40 years old, over 300 pounds, and catatonic when Dr. Landy came back into his life. And this is where things get even worse. Dr. Landy cultivated an extremely destructive doctor-patient relationship that is hard to even imagine. He was a real-life villain who took advantage of Brian Wilson while he was at his weakest. Landy's first step in Brian's rehabilitation was severing Brian's ties with his close family and friends, depriving him of the outside support he really needed. Landy had also misdiagnosed Brian as a paranoid schizophrenic and started aggressively pumping him full of pills, many of the wrong ones at that. Brian was being charged nearly $35,000 a month, and after a few years, Landy had named himself Brian's legal guardian. He was also living in Brian's Pacific Palisades home and remodeling it with Brian's money, 
vacationing in Hawaii and billing it back to Brian, and controlling Brian's every move 24 hours a day. Landy continued to restrict friends and family from seeing him and even demanded writing credit on many of Brian's solo songs. After growing up with the physical and emotional abuse from his father that he did, it was difficult for Brian to see just how dysfunctional his relationship with Dr. Landy was. The whole situation was just so unbelievable. I would encourage you to see Love and Mercy to get just a taste of what this guy was like. Paul Giamatti is incredible as Dr. Landy, whose performance Brian Wilson later called scary and said that he even had his voice right. Brian says today that Dr. Landy was like a father figure, abusive and toxic, but that Landy did help him. And that might be true to an extent, though I'm certain Brian would have eventually died under Landy's care had he not been rescued by Melinda Ledbetter. Brian met Melinda one day at the car dealership she worked at, with Landy and his cronies in tow. As Melinda sold Brian his 86 Cadillac Seville, she and Brian took an interest in each other, and they began dating shortly after. But it didn't take long for her to notice how he always seemed drugged and super out of it when they were together. Landy had been giving Brian downers to keep him out of his hair, but then uppers in the late 80s when Brian's solo album came out so he'd be awake for all the promotion and other things he needed to do for it. She knew something was wrong with the relationship between Brian and his psychologist, so she did some investigating. Landy found out what she was doing and even went so far as to try and cut Melinda out of Brian's life, but she didn't give up. Barred from contact with Brian and now fearing for her safety, Melinda worked tirelessly to prove Landy was harming Brian and insisted upon his release. Finally, she uncovered that upon Wilson's death, his will awarded the vast majority of his wealth to Dr. Landy. This got the attention of Brian's family, they filed a lawsuit, and in 1992, Landy was finally banned from contact with Brian and lost his license. Nearly 10 years later. After a team of UCLA doctors reviewed Brian's mental illness, they correctly diagnosed him with schizoaffective disorder and concluded that Landy's prescriptions had done more damage to Brian than he himself had ever done with recreational drugs. Brian and Melinda reunited in the early 90s and got married in 1995. They are still together today. As for the rest of the Beach Boys, Brian's brother Dennis Wilson ended up briefly involved with the Manson family in the late 60s, introducing Charles Manson to the music industry and even recording some of Manson's songs. Eventually, Dennis realized what a monster he was dealing with and slowly backed away. But he lived the rest of his life knowing that it was his connection to music producer Terry Melcher that drove the Manson family to that house on Cielo Drive in 1969. Dennis tried and failed at a solo career and in his final young years struggled with alcohol and heroin addiction. By 1983, he was homeless, and after checking himself in and out of rehab centers, Dennis drowned at Marina Del Rey at the age of 39. 
the youngest Wilson brother, Carl, a smoker since his teenage years, died in 1998 of complications from lung cancer just two months after their mother Audrey passed. Following Carl's death, Mike Love was given the exclusive license to tour under the name The Beach Boys and continued touring with Bruce Johnston and supporting musicians, as they still do today. This is the lineup I saw in concert in 2010. Mike Love also sued for writing credits in the 90s, stating he had contributed writing to almost 80 Beach Boys songs that went uncredited. He won the case on about half of them. There were a lot of legal problems that plagued the Beach Boys and Brian Wilson, but it seems most of them have since been resolved. Brian Wilson finished his memoir in 2016, which I read and really enjoyed. He also finished Smile, the famous follow-up to Pet Sounds that never was. He released Smile in 2004 as a solo album, and it earned Wilson his first Grammy Award. In 2000, Brian Wilson was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame by Paul McCartney and received the Kennedy Center Honors in 2008. And those are just a few of the many, many awards and acclaims he has received over the years. Brian's daughters from his first marriage to Marilyn, Carney, and Wendy Wilson went on to form the band Wilson Phillips. This way Brian and his wife Melinda have also adopted five children together. These days, he's enjoying just living what he calls a normal life in California, sitting on his comfy chair to relax, creating music, and staying healthy. He's also now receiving proper treatment for his schizoaffective disorder and depression. Brian also still writes and tours as a solo artist with special guest Al Jardine and a band of talented musicians. I can't begin to understand the difficulties Brian Wilson faced his whole life. I know the voices in his head today are very real and can't be ignored. But I hope he feels some small bit of positive cosmic energy every single day, knowing the good he's created for the world. That his hard work, his creativity, and his candor didn't go in vain. Pet Sounds has had a massive impact on so many people, people who felt worried, anxious, and alone. But after listening, maybe they didn't feel so alone anymore. Pet Sounds changed everything. It changed me. The album's remarkable effect on the music industry will be felt for decades to come. Thank you so very much for joining me today. I'm sure you can tell I have a majorly personal connection to Pet Sounds, and I genuinely hope these episodes have inspired you in some way, whether you've never heard Pet Sounds before or if you've been listening to it forever. 
If you want to read the books I read or any other music books I love, head over to RadioGagaPodcast.com and click on book list. I highly, highly recommend reading that Charles Granada book, Wouldn't It Be Nice, if you want an even more in-depth look at the making of pet sounds. It's one of the most well-researched books on music I've ever read. Next week, we are back again with a new episode all about the history of the theremin. Theremin is my favorite non-traditional instrument, and it's the only instrument that is played without touching it. I'm obsessed with it. If you're not familiar with how the theremin works, go to YouTube and see how it's played. We'll talk about how it works, its inventor Leon Theremin, and some of the instrument's uses in modern music. I'll see you back here next week.